Welcome to the American Railroading Podcast, brought to you by the Revolution Rail Group, live from the great state of Texas. We'll discuss a wide range of topics related to the railroad industry, from regulatory items and the challenges our industry faces, to passenger rail excursions, and recognizing U.S. Armed Forces veterans in our industry. Join us as we educate, entertain, and explore the world of American railroading. Here's your host, industry veteran, Don Walsh. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the American Railroading Podcast. I am your host, Don Walsh, President and CEO of the Revolution Rail Group. We are a consulting and brokering firm in the rail car industry. Uh, we provide consulting services for merger acquisition, uh, market analysis, process flow analysis, and we also do brokering services if you're looking to buy, sell, lease, or sublease rail cars, box cars, tank cars, hopper cars, what have you. You can reach out to us today to learn more at 844-455-3434. You can also email us at info at therevolutionrailgroup.com, and you can check out our full suite of services at therevolutionrailgroup.com. And we're also the anchor sponsor for the American Railroading Podcast. With that said, Thanksgiving is here, and I'm not only ready for the smoked turkey, which I never had before until I moved to Texas, and it is amazing. If you've never had smoked turkey, you need to try it out. Got stuffing, we got football, but most importantly, we have time with family and friends, and it's important to take time to give thanks. And having said that, I want to give thanks to all of you, all the listeners, all the viewers. We still continue to remain in the top 10% of all podcasts worldwide, which is absolutely incredible, and that's thanks to each and every one of you. That puts us ahead of something like 2.7 million other podcasts in the world, which is crazy. So that just means that you love America and you love railroading and the combination thereof that we provide to you. So thank you for that. Um, we've been downloaded now in over 22 countries. I think we're in 22, 23 countries now worldwide and on 33 different platforms. So it's simply amazing. So please continue to download, continue to share, and continue to leave reviews. So reviews are very important to our success because they contribute to the algorithms in the interwebs out there. And so the more reviews that you leave for us, whether it's an Apple podcast or Spotify or on our website, it goes out and pushes it further and further out for more people to enjoy. So please continue to leave us reviews. And if you liked what you heard, you can also buy us a cup of coffee. So if you go to our website at AmericanRailroading.net, you look at the bottom left-hand corner of the website screen, you'll see a little yellow cup of coffee. You can click on that and you can buy us one cup, three cups, five cups, or ten cups of coffee. And it's like leaving us a tip. If you like what we do here on the podcast, it goes a long way to help support our efforts. So thank you in advance and for those of you that already have. Don't forget also that we have a YouTube channel for those of you who like video versus the audio. You can watch our videos on our website at AmericanRailroading.net, but you can also look at us uh, on video through YouTube at American Railroading Podcast. Uh, again, we're going to talk a little bit about our online store. So our online store is almost here. Um, I was talking with our marketing uh, company today. We're going to get that launched very, very soon. So in time for Christmas. And my goal is to have it up and running by Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. So stay tuned. We're going to have hats and, and travel mugs and shirts and all kinds of fun stuff with American Railroading logo on it, where you can represent American Railroading and the American Railroading podcast. So we're really looking forward to that just in time for Christmas. So stay tuned and follow me on LinkedIn. That is my primary mode of communication for the podcast. And I think right now I have 2,500 of you following me on there, which is amazing. So thank you for that as well. And continue to follow me there. That's where you're going to see most of the updates regarding American Roading Podcast and our upcoming online store. With this being the holidays, also, I want to talk about our troops. So you, as many of you know, I am a committee member with a group called Boots for Troops out of Magnolia, Texas here. It's near and dear to my heart. 
there's a lot of folks that can't come home for the holidays. You know, we don't necessarily think about that, but there's a lot of folks that are serving our country that can't be with their families this time of year. So if you'd like to support them by sending them a care package, you can do so at boots4troops.org. Again, that's boots4troops.org. You can either purchase a care package to send by adopting a service member, or you can simply donate money to the care package efforts. And either way is a wonderful, wonderful assistance to the program and really makes a difference in boosting the morale of our troops and those deployed. So again, boots4troops.org. Focusing on our subject matter for today, Uh, We spend a lot of time in the industry on rising stars in the industry, which I think is great. But I think we could do a better job of focusing on the trailblazers, on the people that make a difference or have made a difference and an impact on our industry over the years um, as we know it today. And I call those folks difference makers. So today's episode is our first in the difference makers series. And we're going to be talking to my mentor, the man that gave me the opportunity in this industry that opened the door for me that has led to what you see here today, you know, and uh, what I've become in the industry. And so if you listen to episode one, you've heard my story a little bit. And if you haven't, shame on you. Go back and listen to episode one. Uh, <laughs> but I started my career uh, in the industry or my interest in the industry early on. I was 13 years old. Uh, I was in eighth grade and I was out looking for summer work, uh, whether it was cutting grass or cleaning out gutters, what have you. And I, I knocked on the door of a family that I knew from uh, from the neighborhood and the father I knew ran a rail car company. I didn't know exactly what they did at the time, but I knew that I love trains. I mean, who doesn't love trains? And uh, so I knocked on his door and he was kind enough to give me a, a job pulling the weeds in his flagstone walkway. And that's honest to God how it started. And uh, we built a relationship that's still very strong to this day. And uh, my love for rail just continued to grow from the moment on learning from him, getting more opportunities in his shop in Chicago, um, cleaning out locker rooms, whatever it was that I could help out with and eventually ended up running that facility years later. Um, it was just such a blessing. So um that gentleman's name is Joe Schisler Sr. Uh, Joe Schisler Sr. is the founder and chairman of Rescar Companies based in Downers Grove, Illinois. And to give you a little bit of background on Joe, Joe has spent over 54 years in the rail car industry. So I think I'm doing good at going on my 27th now. But no comparison. Uh, Joe grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the area of Cincinnati, Ohio, where his local high school had a graduating class of a whopping 66 kids, <laughs> which we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Um, he went on to be a graduate of the University of Cincinnati in 1960, uh, which he attended on a full academic scholarship and graduated with a degree in chemical engineering. Shortly after graduating college, Joe took on a job at Copper Chemical in Chicago, and a few years later, in 1965, he joined Borden Chemical as a Midwestern sales rep. In 1969, Joe co-founded a company called Resco, who reclaimed and repaired boxcar load restraining equipment, and in 1975, he founded Rescar to clean, repair, paint, and line rail cars, which has grown to be the largest provider of rail car maintenance in North America providing mobile repair services, as well as fleet management, technical engineering services via their sister company, All Trans Tech. Joe has seven children, all of whom have worked for Rescar, three of whom have overseen the daily operations of Rescar since his semi-retirement. Joe has enjoyed 38 wonderful years of marriage with his wife, Laverne, and they continue to reside in the Chicago suburbs even today. And with that, Joe, I say welcome to the American Railroading Podcast. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> it's always good to hear hear from you and see the progress that you're making. 
And it's fun to reminisce about some of the background that we went, I went through in this industry. And uh, anyway, I appreciate you inviting me to participate with you. Absolutely. And thank you for being here with us. It's it's exciting to me to have you here to see everything come full circle right after all these years. And I'm so, so grateful yes. to have you uh, join us today. So, well, your hometown must have been a bustling metropolis <laughs> with 66 kids in your high school. What, what was that like? Well, it was sort of a rural community outside of Cincinnati and Ohio. And uh, it was nice. Nice middle-class or working-class neighborhood grew up. I lived about uh, all quarter of a mile from the high school. So I was always there as a kid playing sports and trying to sneak into the gym. I was never really good enough to make the basketball team. Besides, I was too damn short. Uh, but the coach did keep me around on the freshman year because uh, he used me as a uh, if his starter screwed up, why he put me in and embarrassed the hell out of that this little kid was running around guarding somebody like he was a second skin. So, but uh, anyway, I graduated from Cincinnati as an engineer. My plans were to be in the chemical industry. I wanted to be in sales, marketing. So that's why I went to work both of the companies you mentioned as sales reps. So, Joe, is there is there anything that uh, I've missed about yourself uh, that you'd like to share with our audience uh, regarding your background uh, in the industry? In the industry, I think the only thing I have to add is that uh, I remember when I was about 18 years old, uh, I was walking through the little town where we live or close to, and my grandfather come driving through the town in his older car. And I noticed that he was crying at the wheel of his car. And he stopped, picked me up. And uh, I asked him what was wrong. And he said he had just been forced to retire from the Pennsylvania Railroad after 52 years as an engineer. For, well, he wasn't an engineer the whole time, but most of it as an engineer. At the time, I couldn't understand how anybody would want to be for a company for 52 years. I didn't understand why he was crying. Uh, today, I understand more. Uh, I appreciate it. I didn't get into this business because of that or because of that. And it was more of a unique circumstances. But I still remember that incident because, you know, today, after going 54 years, uh, I understand the meaning of what a company can mean to you, what a career can mean to you. So uh, I salute my grandfather and uh, and respect more why he was crying than I ever did back then. And I feel the same way, honestly, about you and and, and my experience working with you and throughout my career and the impact that you've had on me. So that 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 okay. I, that speaks yeah. to me very much. Um, so. Was railroading a big part of where you grew up then? Yeah, I I grew up in a small town in rural outside of Cincinnati and went to the University of Cincinnati, chemical engineering. Uh, I had a full academic scholarship. 
um, embarrassed to say that uh, I lost that scholarship because I decided to uh, mainly focus on pool and ping pong for the first year I was in school. And because uh, I thought college would be like high school where I just had to read the book or show up occasionally and I'd get through. Not quite that way. But uh, but I was a damn good pool and ping pong player and could hustle most people around the school back in those days for quarters. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, have no, that, I have no doubt. <laughs> when I came out of there, I went to work in marketing. Uh, with a couple companies, uh, Copper's Chemical and Borden Chemical. Uh, both of them produced various types of chemicals. I, for Borden Chemical, I was a Midwestern sales representative covering four states. Uh, traveled two weeks and was home two weeks. So uh, Made a nice, I guess, uh, I don't know whether it was advantageous or negative for my wife at that time. Starting your first company uh, with Resco, people ask me all the time, what's it like uh, starting your own business? And I say it's like walking a high wire without a net. <laughs> you know. So being a young father at the time of three children, right, and, and that was at the time where you took this big leap of faith, um, what was that like? That had to be a little, little scary for you, I would guess. Yeah, I wish I could say that uh, it was a well-thought-out plan, but it wasn't. Um, I met this gentleman, Tony Gobia, Bill Camp, who were my partners, uh, and bar drinking. And, and so uh, Bill was an, a customer of mine at the chemical industry. He bought materials to make paint. And uh, Tony worked, as I said, for Evans Products. But uh, which manufactured overstraining. But Tony was the one that came up with the idea. And he kept pestering us for probably good six, nine months that, to start this business. Finally, Bill and I gave in. Uh, I don't know if it was because we were sober or not, but uh, we did. And uh, I can tell you it was a major decision. But each put up all $3,000. And so with $6,000 and some used equipment that Tony had, that's what we started our business with. You notice I ramp a lot. Uh, oh, so no. You <laughs> You're doing great. And that was Resco that you're referring to now. And then six, yes. six years later, I believe you started Rescar, which had a little bit of a different focus than Resco, where it focused on rail car maintenance and repair. So can you tell us what led to the transition from the load dividers in boxcars to full-on rail car repair? In 1971, somewhere out there, 72, we, our plant was in Blue Island, Illinois at that time. And uh, some of the railroads asked us if, if they could send the whole damn car to us for us to repair the interior equipment. Now, that could be DF bars, side fillers, ball kits, you name any type of low restraining equipment. And we started doing some of that, but we didn't have a whole hell of a lot of track at that plant. So... We decided, thought about it, thought about it, decided to go into the car repair business, maybe. Anyway, uh, we located a facility in Longview, Texas, uh, and 
we acquired it, and uh, Rescar put the money up to expand that facility and build a car repair shop there. And uh, so we started actually, and Rescar was a wholly owned subsidiary of Resco from about 1972 on. Uh, in 75, my partner and I decided we needed to get a divorce or a split. Uh, he took part of the business. I took part. I took the rail car repair. He took the old DF or old loader straightening equipment part of the business, which was by far and away the most profitable part of the business. So I'm not sure how smart I was. The Lord looked, was looking after me. And uh, so we started out with the Longview plant. We had to start a plant up in Chicago uh, to replace the Chicago plant that we had previously with Resco. Uh, we started one off the Belt Railway. Started in June, and by September, we were repairing rail cars. Uh, that's a hell of a move. Uh, I give that all to my father who worked with me at that time. Uh, and we then had, uh, I think, four M&R pools, which were railroad-operated pools, uh, where they railroads assigned certain numbers of cars to a particular shipper for their need. And we were then would be contracted by the railroad that was managing that operation for all the other railroad uh, partners. And uh, we would do the repairs, mostly to interior equipment, doors, things like that, not any of the safety equipment, though. So we started those businesses. Those were the most profitable part of our rest car business in the beginning. Uh, and in 1975, we started up on our own. Uh, grew it from there over the next, uh, up into, let's say, 1990. Uh, I think we went from uh, those beginning two shops to, uh, I think, nine uh, shops and uh, 26 uh, combination pools and many shops. I'd like to just, if I can, take a moment to talk about many shops, because I think that was one of our really groundbreaking ideas that we had. Uh, we had the being back in the rest in Resco business, then coming in into well, you know the shop business was there, but it wasn't real profitable. Never has been uh, the. Business, though, we started with these many shops where we would send crews to a customer's plant, normally a private car or like an Exxon or Chevron or, uh, you know, Phillips or uh, DuPont or who, you name it, Union Carbide. And we would then repair their cars so that they could, they can repair them on site. Because normally our first Mini shop was in Longview, Texas, for Eastman Company, which was maybe 10 miles away. But if they had to ship a car to us at our plant, Longview, it took the railroad at least one week to get it to us, one week to get it back to them, and one month in our plant. So they lost the car for two months. That's a lot of money to railroad or to shippers. 
So we would go there and prepare the cars two, three days for it, and they'd have it back in service most of the time. This is what really grew for us. Uh, by the time uh, we ended up, we had 67 locations of like many shops, mostly many shops by then, because pools had sort of come and gone. Uh, and then, uh, and by that time, we had 11 major shops, uh, or shops in the country. Five of them were majors. One of them was a dedicated shop, our Wilson Road shop in Longview, uh, which was a second facility in Longview, Texas, uh, which was originally built as a dedicated facility for Amoco. Uh, and then also for uh, Exxon, I believe. Uh, but uh, most of our other, all of our other shops were open shops to any customer. Well, and that is incredible growth in that amount of time. And one one thought that I had was when you started all of this, were there other privately owned rail car repair companies like you? Or were you one of the first and most of them were run by railroads? Uh, no, there were a number of privately owned rail car companies. Uh, the problem is that rail car shops were never profitable. Think about it. In most businesses, you know what's, what you're producing. So you know what to buy and you know what to schedule your workforce to be because you know what's coming to in a rail car shop. You have no idea what's going to show up to you. Turns up on your shop, you got to order parts for it, you got to get approvals, blah, blah, blah. Cars can set for months or they'll, what's even worse, they'll get in your repair facilities. And then all of a sudden, the owner will change the specs, or you'll be a material won't show up, and it sets there for, for a month, and that just stops that whole line in your facility. So shops were never real profitable. So I think our real success was in starting the mini shop operation because they were much more profitable than rail bar shops. Even though rail car shops were, our, were most of our dollars were produced in the original shops and uh, where most of our people were trained. And some of the challenges I would imagine at that time, too, was the AR labor rate, because now it's $170 plus an hour. So back then, what was it? $10 an hour? Seven bucks when I first started out. Wow. <laughs> And that, that had I to make mean, it that, much more difficult to be profitable. And even 20 years ago, it was $70, I remember. And uh, it still wasn't real profitable, but it was a good business. And I'm glad we grew it. Uh, in 1922, I think it was 21, we decided to sell our plants. So we sold them to another company. Uh, which is operating today and has expanded on it and is trying to build a, a major network for real repair shops. Uh, I'm glad we don't have our shops anymore. It allowed me to pay off every damn debt we had, all our vendors who were thankful, and everything else and have money in the bank. And uh, 
and go on and expand the business we have today, which is mainly in-plant services of all different types supplying to the industry and services uh, such as all trans tech, which is growing into a very significant portion of our today's business. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll uh, and managing we'll be, probably close to five hundred thousand railroads. Right, and we'll be discussing them in great greater detail here in just a moment. And I can't wait to tell folks more about that. So back in Resco Rescar, what eventually happened to Resco? They're not they're not in business anymore, are they? No, really not. Uh, the recession of 1981-82, the railroads uh, decided to scrap out 300,000 boxcars. Well, that's where all the uh, loaders training equipment was used. So, unfortunately, Resco went out of business at that time. Um, and I felt bad about it because there were friends of mine, people I'd worked with, back in the early days in Resco, who were no longer able to be in work and uh, had lost a lot of their, their income. And uh, that was not a very good thing. Did give me a, really a little bit of a, a feeling of victory over my ex-partner because uh, of the split that uh, Rescar or did the good Lord has continued to grow. Uh, and Resco is now out of business. So uh, I hate to see that happen because I like that old company. But, but you made the right decision. Why the marbles roll. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> right. And you've talked about the tremendous growth that Rescar's had over the years and, and the innovations that you've also had, like the implant services and things. So as you continue to grow, you needed to build on your leadership team, right, to handle to help handle that and and promote the growth. And one of the folks I remember well, which was a dear friend of yours, is Myron Harkins. And I have a, yes. a, a really funny story about Myron um, in my my coming up through the industry. So I was in your management candidate program, and I was out at the Elk Mills Maryland facility for training for uh, about 14, 16 months or so. Myron was in charge of the candidate program. He was in charge of re reviewing us and giving feedback on how we were doing. I was excited and nervous to have him come out. I knew he was coming, never met him before, but you've heard the lore of Myron Harkins because he had quite the reputation in the industry before he came to Rescar. And then, of course, it continued to grow while with Rescar. So I had just gotten weld certified. Uh, for stick welding. And it was a, a young man, uh, rest in peace, Johnny Barrett, that uh, t taught me how to weld. He had a, a welding training course at the local community college. So I was so proud of myself that I got certified just before Myron was coming out. And I was underneath a tank car welding the day he was coming. And I heard, I could tell that drawl from a mile away, you know, so I knew that was him coming up behind me along with the plant manager and assistant plant manager. I was running such a perfect bead and I was so proud of myself because I'm like, he's going to see me doing this. <laughs> and then there's smoke billowing up from underneath my welder's hood. I'm like, holy crap, I'm, I'm burning up. <laughs> but I didn't want to stop because I had this good bead going. So he comes up behind me and I could hear him talking and I'm just smoldering. And he taps me on the shoulder and says, son, I do believe your britches are on fire. 
<laughs> and, and then pulled me out from under the car and he says, why the hell didn't you stop? I said, man, I had such a good bead. <laughs> so he said, that's what I like to see. I like to see my managers getting dirty. And uh, he was such a great guy. We went out to dinner that night and had a great conversation. And, and uh, I always loved Myron. Um, and as I said, he was already well established in the industry and you went out and got folks like him to join your team. So can you tell us a little bit about Myron and how you got folks like him to come aboard? Because clearly uh, he brought a lot of uh, reputation with him. Back in, again, all the way to like 73, 74, Myron had been running a small shop in Longview that was operated by Gulf, uh, Gulf Oil, uh, who Myron had been working for for many years. And they decided they were closing that facility. Uh, they offered Martin the opportunity to buy the shop. And at that time, we offered him the opportunity to come over to the service drive facility and be our operations manager, plant manager, whatever you want to call it. And for whatever reasons, Martin decided to take us up on it. And uh, he was then with us for, oh, well, for the next 30, 40, 30 years or so. Uh, Myron was just a hell of a character in the industry. Everybody that was in the repair industry knew him. Most people who were in charge of repairs for other people's rail cars uh, all knew him and was he was well respected. But Myron joined us. Bob Clark was another man that came up through my Longview shop uh, and took on a number of management positions. My father, who came in 1971 from Cincinnati, out of the machine tool industry, uh, was uh, ran our Chicago operations and then came into the corporate office with me and thankfully was there to run it so that I could go do uh, a lot of traveling, selling, motivating people. Uh, I was never really very good at much the financial ends of it or the uh, the computer systems or any of that type of thing. I was strictly good at selling and people. And that was my job, was to sell and to motivate people in our company. I think one little story I'll tell you that I always remember, the very first cold call, or second, I should say, the second cold call I made in the rail industry when we started Resco was I went up to Norfolk, uh, Norfolk Western at that time, NW, at their office in Roanoke, Virginia. The reason I'd gone is because the, day, the week before I'd gone to the St. Louis and sold the old OPAC 6,000 pieces of equipment to be delivered during the next year. I went back to the, our Chicago shop. I was excited as hell. And my partner looked at me and said, where in the hell are you getting 6,000 pieces? We probably had 300 at the time in, our, in a, the little yard we had. So I had heard that the equipment at the Decatur yard at the, new, uh, the NW, that they had some equipment there. So I got on an airplane, went to uh, the, uh, Roanoke, 
Unfortunately, when I got there, the sales or the purchasing agent was on vacation. So I ended up having to meet the materials manager. And But while I was waiting in that waiting room, one of the, there were other sales waiting there. One of them came up to me, I still remember to this day, sort of stood up next to me and said, son, with that shirt you got on, you're never going to make it in this industry. They only wear white shirts because I had a pastel orange shirt on. I remember that to the, even to this day. Uh, whereas I truthfully never wore a damn white shirt after that. But uh, uh, but I went in and met them with the uh, materials manager. Somehow got him to agree to know me from the hill of beans. Got him to agree to let me go into their Decatur yard, take out any of excess equipment that his local manager deemed that he didn't need. And I'd negotiate a price with purchasing agent next week. I think that was the best sales job I ever did in my life. Um, but so I took three or four trucks, went to Decatur later that week, uh, loaded three or 4,000 pieces of equipment on the trucks. And I can tell you, I loaded more than my share. Uh, I was so damn sore when I got done with that night. But we brought back equipment that really started us in business because without that, I don't know how we'd have got started. But um, just shows you how sometimes you get lucky. And luck is being good. Luck is better than being talented, I think. Uh, but anyway, I still remember those two events, the, the getting equipment and the opportunity to even go back later four or five more times to Decatur and load up trucks because they wouldn't allow the railroad people to work for me. So I had to take my own people. But I can tell you that they stopped work at 3.30. And I worked the dark. <laughs> and that June, every damn night, I was down there. And I loaded up everything I could. And you got it done. <laughs> I got it done. And I still remember that warm shirt deal. <laughs> well, I have to remember that from now on. <laughs> it, it, it's a lesson but learned. Rail, I think you need to read the, the only thing I would say seriously is the rail industry at that time was very stagnant. It had been in business a hundred years. They had codified everything that was done in the rail industry. I realized I'm not a railroad. I'm a person that was in the industry of repairing rail cars and subsequently mostly privately owned rail cars or leasing company rail cars, some railroad cars, wreck damage work, things like that. But uh, I was not a railroad. Uh, after the initial 10 years or so of business, I had very little to do with railroads other than going to conventions and things like that. But uh, the railroads were so stagnant, such a bureaucratic mess. They, people were moved in jobs strictly by seniority. Uh, even in their management side, 
I'm not saying the CEOs and the top, but most other jobs were, seemed to me. Uh, and they just couldn't get anything done. They had a significant union conflicts, as we all know, and they still have them to this day. But And they've changed things. You know, back then, there were four people to every rail car, rail train that moved. Today, they're down to two. They've big difference. They got rid of cabooses, for example. Uh, they've made tremendous changes over the years and become much more aggressive as business people. Today, they're mostly focused on what it seems to me moving freight over their line, main lines and not they they want to get out of the switching of individual plants uh, which they used to do they wanted to get out of maintaining rail cars because they don't make money at rail cars they make money on moving rail cars uh, so it's changed a lot I think and to the good the rail industry but I speak only, that's the only comment I have about the rail industry itself or railroads, uh, because most of my knowledge and experience deals with the repair industry, repairing those rail cars yeah. or providing services to car users. Yeah. And, and I want to go back for a moment and talk about your relationships with uh, with your employees in that, because I agree um, that was one of the first big takeaways I ever had of you was your relationship with people. You're so good with people. And one of the hourly first hourly employees that I met and one of the first hourly employees, I believe, of Rescar uh, was Romero Contreras. And uh, such yeah. a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, he was sup my superintendent at the Chicago plant when I was running the Chicago plant many years later. And <laughs> the story that I've been told, and I don't know how true this is, is hilarious about how he uh, came to work for Rescar, which was that he was uh, sitting in a bar, I believe, um, in the Chicago suburb, Blue Island, I think it was. And one of the regional managers walked in there and said, hey, we're looking for people to come work on trains. And he raised his hand and that was it. And 40 years later, he was still with with the company. And, you know, it just it speaks volumes to how uh, the culture was there because people worked 20, 30, 40 years for the company. And so his story is one of many uh, that I really enjoyed hearing about the longevity and the culture that was created. And regarding the culture, uh, one of the many things that I was um, amazed by um, with how you were known by everyone in the company. So you would literally go to each location uh, once a year. You knew everybody's name. You knew a little bit about each one so you could have a conversation with them. That made a huge impression on me as an up-and-coming leader, you know. And I've tried to emulate that. I don't know how good of a job I've done with that, but I've certainly tried. But you also would have Christmas parties where you would welcome people into your personal home with everyone from a laborer to a vice president, didn't matter. Um, where did that come from? Where where did you learn, uh, or maybe it's just a part of who you are inherently, but um, to show your appreciation for the folks that work for you like that? Well, you know, my dad encouraged me to work from when I was 14 years old. I started out picking blueberries and raspberries for 10 cents a quart. Uh, that's a lot of a lot of berries That's a lot. To go into a for 10 cents. And uh, I had a whole bunch of different jobs. And then the engineering school I went to at University of Cincinnati, uh, 
was a co-op school, which means you work part-time, went to school part-time. And the first year you went full-time to school. But our school days were basically eight hours a day. Start at nine o'clock, let go at 4.30. And uh, about two days a, a week, it quit at 3.30. But uh, then from there on, it was 10 weeks working, seven weeks school, 10 weeks working, seven weeks school, bum, bum, bum. and very few vacations, you know. So you got to know people uh, working. You know, my comment today is, I hire, have hired a lot of people, such as yourself, but a lot of people. Most people come to us today that from college or even high school, and they have no damned idea what work is. They have no idea about business operates. They just expect that they're going to be taken care of like the mommies took care of or how the college took care of them. And all of a sudden, they have a rude shock when they come to find out that their boss doesn't really give a shit about most times, that uh, they're just going to have to learn to take and do what they're told, when they're told, you know, and that irritates a lot of people and should. I, I remember going through all that myself, parts I liked, parts I didn't like, and I tried to remember those lessons. Uh, also, I remember that if I knew people, you know, at one time, I'd say, even when we had five, 600 people working for the company, I knew everybody at every plant location, their name, other than maybe they've just been hard. I knew what their wife's name was. I knew there's something about their kids. I tried to make sure I did. I had a good memory for that. Uh, and as a result, when I could go to a location, I could shake hands with everybody there and ask them, hey, how's Ethel doing her house? You know, Mary doing. And I think that makes a big importance to people that their owner of their company cares about them, knows them, knows enough about them to know their name. They're not just a damn number. They're a name. And uh, I think it makes a big difference. Also, I always told my management team, you know, they own the successes. I own the failures of anybody, anybody working because they get the success of what they make happen. And I have to pay the results of failures. But that's okay. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I'll live by that as long as they're giving me 100% of their efforts to make things happen. And even the ones that don't, don't worry about, I'll take those for the positives that you do. So I think those kinds of attitudes, and you're right, I used to travel around the company, uh, even when we had uh, close to 100 well, 90-so locations. And at least every year, once a year, I got to just about every location in the company uh, for our profit sharing, and just how the company is doing and where we're going, what it means to them. So 
I think people appreciated that. And as a result, we're willing to give extra to make the company successful. I agree. And it certainly meant and a lot to me. That, yeah. I give that to all, you know, our success of the company was not me. It was these people that were out there working hard to make things happen and impressing customers and getting new business and expanding our company. Yeah, absolutely. And and it showed, and as you said, it showed in, in the longevity of of the team across the board, uh, 20, 30, 40 years. And that, that says a lot about the culture you created. Um, so as the company continued to grow, uh, the leadership team continued to grow. And you mentioned earlier about your, your dad coming on board. Um, you had your dad on board, you had your brother on board. And I always thought that was so neat that the family was involved in, in the growth of the business. So can you tell us a little bit about how um, your dad, your brother got on board with what you were doing yeah all the way back in 1971 and we just started the business a year and a half prior to that and i happened to be in cincinnati visiting my mom and dad where they lived at that time i was in chicago and uh, i was telling how all the good things we were doing and how successful we were being but i uh, told my dad over a few visits some of the problems i had and that I needed skills, talented people, because what the hell, I didn't have it. We could only train people so fast. Uh, so dad, I tried, I asked him finally if he would be willing to come work. I look back now and I say, God, how a man, he was a manager of the machine tool company he worked for. Uh, he, he had been living in that community for, you know, all of his life. He was in his 50s, him and my mom. And they moved to Chicago, mostly for my, my children, to be close to their grandchildren and work with me. And to be part of that, uh, that was a hell of a move, I think, on his part. But Dad, for the next 25 years, he and I worked very closely together. And I give him a tremendous amount of the uh, of being the success of our company because he ran the day-to-day parts of the business, which allowed me to go out and do the selling. And then in 1976, I think it was, I there was a in Colorado Springs, there was an AAR meeting there. And I had an orange pumpkin at that time which we called, well, we called it the orange pumpkin. It was an orange motor home. Uh, one of those G, GM made, a, made them back in those days. And uh, so we decided to drive to Colorado. My mom and dad and myself, we got out there, went to visit my brother, of course, who lived in Colorado Springs. He worked at Cheyenne Mountain on the Norad uh, computer system. And uh, so talked to him and asked him if he'd like to come work for us, um, encouraged him. And finally, he said yes. And uh, we sent him down to Longview, Texas. Uh, he worked just like you went to Elk Mills. He went to Longview and worked for two years repairing rail cars, learning how to weld, do all those manual things and learning the rules. And we all know you, that damn railroad 
AAR rules book, which is about what an imp stick written on tissue paper. Uh, so as a result, uh, Gus became extremely knowledgeable about the car business. And he then went, when we bought in 77, we bought the uh, uh, Du Bois plant, late 77. We bought it, and so it was 77 and 78. He went up to Du Bois with Bob Clark. Bob was the plant manager. Gus was the shop super, supervisor or foreman, whatever you want to call it. And they ran that facility for six, five, six years before they each moved on to other responsibilities. Gus ultimately became the plant manager at Du Bois. Uh, and then in Chicago, finally Gus became the president of our company and worked at our corporate office in 1960. No, 1980. He was 60 years old, I forget the year. And uh, he decided he wanted to retire and uh, asked me if he could. And uh, I agreed, I don't mean that he asked if he could, he asked me if it wouldn't be too much, you know, a problem. And so he moved down to Fort Myers, Florida and lived there up until a month ago when he passed away at 80. Uh, my father continued to work, come to work every damn day at Rescar until he passed away in 73, 4, something like that. I'm not too good on dates anymore. That's all right. You get to be 84, you start to forget. <laughs> I'm forgetting things now. <laughs> and, uh, but, and I might think of what you got to look forward to. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's all downhill from here, Joe. <laughs> Well, and and my condolences, by the way, on the loss of Gus. And uh, they were both your your dad and your brother were always so good to me. I always enjoyed uh, seeing both of them whenever I'd come visit the corporate office. They always really looked out for me as well, and always were asking if I had any questions and if there's anything they could do to help. And I always always appreciated that. And you talked about your children a little bit. So your children also joined the company over the following years, including Joe Jr., who's now CEO, Susan, who's now president, uh, Jeff, who's now senior vice president of marketing and uh, sales. David was also involved in sales and business development for many years. And then Jennifer, Michael, and Chris all worked for Rescar also. So you must be very proud of your children. So you want to take a moment and just brag on your kids a little bit? Well, I will because they have done a hell of a job. Uh, although I'll be honest with you, I always tried to take and talk them into doing something else, go to work for another company, learn how they do business, learn other ways of doing business. And then if you want to come back to the company, because you can bring that talent with you. Uh, Joe, he decided when he was 50, 16, he came to work for us at our Chicago plant, uh, doing the typical shoveling shit or steel or whatever you want to call it, and uh, manual work. And uh, but then he moved on where Joe became our chief financial officer. He designed all the computer systems that we operated our business on, and remember. There's a hell of a lot of difference between running 
and managing a business that has 2,000 people located at one location than it is managing 2,000 people at 70 locations or 80 locations across the country because each one of those has to have all statements. Makes a whole different difference in how you go about keeping your records. So information so people can judge how to run their sacred business. Uh, and you got to remember, I'm a dinosaur. Uh, I grew up, when I graduated college as an engineer, I still used a slide as all my calculations. We didn't have calculators or anything like that. Neither did it on a slide or in your head. And uh, it, it was so different than it is today, you know, business-wise. But uh, since I was always focused on the people side of the business, I never really had to learn too much about the technical sides of the business. So uh, that makes me a dinosaur. But I'm glad that I'm where I am today and can say that and not way back then. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely. And when uh, when I joined Rescar in 1997, uh, the company had already been considered the largest privately owned rail car repair company in North America. And in addition to the brick and mortar shops, as you said, you went into mobile repair. You had a, a one point of contact 800 number, which to me, in my experience, was unusual because usually you had to call in an individual location to get a mobile crew out, but, but not with, with your company. That was very innovative. And then the implant services, which you've talked about, another innovative service that you offered at that time was mobile repair, uh, mobile cleaning with a huge semi-tractor trailer uh, with a flatbed with two massive tanks on it that would go out to customers' sites and clean rail cars on site, as you said earlier, to help them with their efficiencies, help them with their throughput. So with, were there other companies doing that kind of thing at the time? Because I would think that was mostly cleaning of barge and storage tanks, not rail cars necessarily. Mostly. I mean, there were companies that cleaned rail cars, but that usually meant the rail car had to come to them at their location to be cleaned. We had that at our plants, each of our, excuse me, each of our major plants had a fixed cleaning operation there to clean cars. We also put them on, as you said, trucks and made them mobile uh, so that we could go to a customer's plant and clean or to a yard or wherever it happened to be. And uh, that, I think, was, I'm not saying we're the only one that ever did it. I can't prove that. But I think we're the only ones that ever made it significant. Just like you mentioned, that, that uh, call number. We still have it today. We have four people full-time doing nothing but being in our troubleshooting department where Customers call in and they have a problem. And these four people are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, some of them are. And they take hundreds of calls each year and direct work of our mobile units to go out and service problems that customers have. And it's surprising how I think successful that has been. Uh, it's got our name in front of so many people. 
Oh, for sure. And then you had folks like uh, Melvin Shrewsbury, right? That the 800 number that would yeah. answer a lot of those calls and uh, and then would call people like me and say, hey, you need to get out there and fix this crude oil car <laughs> in the middle of wherever. Yeah. Um, and, and people like Melvin were certainly the anchor for that. And I agree. It was very innovative and very successful for customers that have one point of contact. And something I always found exciting was about in 1998, uh, you began hiring engineers for the QAQC department, which was very unusual. There weren't other rail car repair companies doing that, and that was to help internally with level three non-destructive tested testing training, welding certifications, regulatory compliance audits, getting folks ready for the AARFRA audits for their shops and engineering needs. And then that turned into a service offering that you all decided to offer it to other customers and even competitors, and you branded it TransTech at that time. And I don't know yeah. that anyone else was doing that at that time. And um, what was what was the um, thought process behind that to take your own engineering department and offer that up for uh, services to others? It's sort of been, I think, our focus for many years has been what can we do for our customer that makes us valuable, important to them and offers us an opportunity to provide them with some sort of service. Uh, And if you think at it that way, you know, today we do everything from switch rail cars, do minor track maintenance, do uh, repair linings inside of uh, hopper cars, do mobile cleaning, as you said, have troubleshooting, uh, and a number of other services that we do in addition to car repair. And then we have all trans tech, we just mentioned, who does management of technical management of people for people's cars. Like uh, sometimes they're responsible for shopping cars for customers. They keep records for customers. They tell them when they're going to have to have uh, their uh, those 10-year. Yeah, like, HM216. Yep. Work. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, the all-trans tech business is just growing. And you're right. We have, we have three, uh, level three uh, engineers. People. Yeah. Well, well I want to take and I want to take and, I want to take a minute and go back really quick and explain to our listeners how all Transtech came to be, and okay, because I think it's really neat how that happened. So you had all you had Transtech, which was the engineering department of Rescar, and then there was a company in called Alltrans, which was a fleet management company, right? And I think it was 1999 right. or 2000 or so um, that you all got together with the uh, founders of Alltrans, which would at that time have been Rich Bath and Jeff Wilson. And you took TransTech and AllTrans, and it became AllTransTech, which is what we know and love today. That is uh, one of the industry leaders, as you've said, um, with fleet management, managing over 300,000 rail cars out of the 1.5 million uh, national fleet. And then engineering services, hazmat services, NDT. So, yeah, I just wanted to let people know how that all came about, because I don't think many folks realize that, that it was a combination of two two different aspects of the business that came together back in 1999 or so. No, uh, Jeff is uh, president, right, of all Transtech still today. Yes. Still runs it. Yeah. And I get to see him and, and all uh, the, entre- all tra- 
I get to see him and all the all trans tech folks at every conference there is, and they have made such a huge impact. So congratulations on that, amongst other things that you've done that we've already talked about that were innovative, because that was huge. There was no one else like that that had that kind of um, involvement in the industry that was putting that kind of education, training out there. So go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier, but if you want to take a moment, just kind of jump in about all trans tech and all the things that they're doing for the industry. Well, they are. And truthfully, even when we operated our plants, we would all trans tech would take our competitors and go into their shops and contract with them to put in the various uh, quality systems, training systems, record keeping systems that they wanted and that they didn't have themselves, especially as you're well aware of as the FRA has become so much more involved in rail transportation requirements, uh, especially for tank cars and chemical hoppers, that uh, the requirements to be in that business are so much greater than they ever were. Even today, though, to do repair a, a freight car, a box car, gondola, uh, you don't need too damn many permits to do that. And uh, you can basically, anybody can start that business. If you want to repair, say, a tank car, you need to meet all these FRA and AAR requirements. They're quite significant today. And all Transtech gave us a tremendous advantage. Plus, I'm going to have to say at this point and give my daughter Susan accolades because she has become one of the foremost uh, people knowledgeable of the rules and regulations and what's required to meet these uh, training requirements and management and safety requirements. And she's in charge of all these functions for us today, other than the Altrans tech functions. So she has done a tremendous job of not gaining that knowledge herself and being a woman in that position is quite unique in the rail industry because the rail industry doesn't have many women uh, more today than it did when I first started. Uh, when I first started, there wasn't any other than the secretary. Today, we have managers yeah. and running companies, so much different. Well, and speaking of differences in the industry, uh, that's a perfect segue for my next question. So you've seen a lot in 54 years. You've seen a lot of changes um, in the ebb and flow of the industry, which can be cyclical, of course. But I know you still have your ear to the ground. Even though you say you're semi-retired, I, I know that you still like to uh, keep your ear to the ground on what's happening. Um, what changes do you see in the industry uh, kind of on the horizon? I, I think you have to define for me what industry do you oh, talk about? sorry, oh, the rail car repair space. Or in the repair industry. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to continue that technical people are going to become harder and harder to find in the rail industry. Railroads have gotten rid of almost all of their mechanical, technical personnel. Uh, most private car owners you know, have today. In many cases, the people managing thousands of cars, fleets, don't have much, they know the rules, but they don't have much knowledge of actual how to repair. Load. So 
this has been going on and it's an evolution. It started way before I even got into the business where the railroads did everything for the industry. Today, the railroads do just a portion, which is what they want to do. And there are other portions that either have services provided to them or need to have service provided to them. So I look forward to the, as I tell my kids, I wish I was 30 years younger. I'd love to get back into the business today. I'd love to be part of Rescar today and all Transtech today because of all the different services we can provide. They need to be provided, whether it's by us or by somebody. And I'd rather it be us. <laughs> and uh, damn, I can just see tremendous opportunities out there. Now, at my age, I can't do it because of physicality and what have you. Besides that, I forget. Uh, I forget some dates and I forget words occasionally. So I'll be sitting there and I try to think of what this cup is. But I couldn't say the damn word that my life depended upon. But that's age, knowing the dynamics of business. I'm more excited about it today than I've ever been. And it and, shows. Uh, and it really does I, show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've done so much over time uh, within the industry. You've made such an impact on it. And as I've said many times now, you've made such an impact on me personally. When I first entered the industry, you gave me two pieces of advice, which I still remember to this day. Uh, you've gave me many, but these are two that really stuck with me. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, because we are so regulated on the repair side, well, even on the all Transtech side of things with quality assurance and, and, and quality control, uh, you said, don't try to remember everything. Just be a sponge, absorb as much as you can, and know where to find the answers. And that was huge to someone new to the industry that was kind of overwhelmed with all the manuals because there's so many of them. For people that haven't been exposed to our industry, they're listening or watching. It is highly regulated that even just an estimate has so many bits and pieces to it that you have to have right or the whole thing gets kicked back, you know. And the other thing you, you said to me was you don't have to be knowledgeable in everything. You just have to surround yourself with people who are. And as a manager – that was so important to me because, you know, you, you don't have to know it all, but you have to have a good quality assurance manager who knows their aspect. You have to have a, a good maintenance uh, manager who knows their aspect and everybody works together as a team. Uh, that was huge to me as well because it didn't make me feel like I had to wrap my arms around everything. So having said that, we have a whole new generation of folks entering the industry now as we have folks retiring and that, and we need the younger generation. We need the next generation to come up and step up and, and take on roles with us. So what advice would you give to somebody entering the industry today? Like you gave to me many years ago, work as hard as you can always try to do the best. And I, I always said, I don't mind arguing with somebody, a customer about how much it costs, but if I don't give them quality, I can't argue about price. You know, I have to be a, a low ball player. And I don't want to be a low ball player. I want to be a quality player as much as I can and be able to charge a fair price for the work that we're doing. So I think it's, and the other thing I would just say to people is in the repair industry, look for ways that you can be of service to your customers. Because they need so much. They really do. 
They don't have the technical support people, the logistics people themselves involved in their companies. They buy that service, whether it's from people like Hub, for example, which is a multi-billion dollar uh, company that handles shipping management, you know, to smaller companies, but be looking for how can you be of service? Because the more you can be of service, the more valuable you are. And the more valuable you are, the more money you're going to make. And money is only important because it's a way to keep track. It's just a numbering system that we have that you got to make money to be able to be in business, but not because the money is so damn important. Uh, you know, money is just something you play with, sort of like Monopoly. Yeah, you got to position yourself in just the right spots, which I thought you always did with your location. And I actually, it's funny you say that because that was a game when I was a kid that really set off a light bulb for me, which was that if you position yourself correctly, people have to utilize you. And then that's always been something you've done very well with uh, with your company. So what would you say you've enjoyed the most during your time in the industry? What are some of your fond memories of being in the industry? I think my fondest memories deal with my personal life. Uh, you know, my wife and I, you know, hell, I never expected to be married 80, 38 years toward us my age. But we are. We're hoping to make more than 40. Uh, so that, my family, with my children, my friends, people like yourself, uh, some I'm more close with. Unfortunately, many of my closest friends have passed away by now. And uh, so I'm always making new friends. Uh, but I like to talk business with people. I like to hear people tell me about their business, you know, because I learn more by listening to them how they run their business than I ever did by trying to tell them how to run a business. So I know I've done a lot of talking today. But talking's not as important as listening. Well, but this is about you today. So talk all you want. <laughs> because like I said, this is a this is an episode on people that I think are difference makers in the industry, folks that made an impact. And and you are definitely one of those folks. In fact, um, I'm gonna be creating an American Railroading uh, uh, Life Achievement Award. And I just want you to know that you're going to be the first recipient of that award because I think you've made a tremendous impact on the industry, uh, not just for me personally. I'm not trying to be selfish about that. Uh, you've impacted a lot of lives and a lot of folks and a lot of families uh, in a very positive way and the industry as a whole. Um, we've talked a lot about that today. So uh, so thank you for that. And, and believe it or not, we're nearing the end of our episode already, Joe. And so is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we go today? Hey, it's been a good trip. I enjoy most every part of it. Uh, I enjoy working with people. And some of the people I've met have been wonderful. I've been friends for life. And uh, some of the people and I haven't got along. You know, I used to always have an attitude that I didn't like to know my competitors too well because I was always trying to take the business away from them. Uh, and it's hard to want to take and hurt your friend. But 
I do know my competitors today and I respect them today because of what they bring to the table because everybody brings something, some better than others. So I appreciate you telling me about the award and I appreciate your comments about you thinking of myself and my company being a difference maker to the industry. I do think we have made an impact on the real repair industry, mostly in the private car ownership basis, but uh, from Rescar standpoint, but some railroad, you know, and again, our original pools are all doing business with the railroads. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be in business today. So I, I am just excited about our whole industry and where it's going and what it can be if we continue to change and continue to realize just because we've done it that way doesn't make it in the past, doesn't make it wrong, but it doesn't make it right. The question is, what's the best way of doing it? And many people have trouble finding that, you know, what is the best way of doing things? And uh, they get caught up in their own undershorts, but emotions preconceived ideas, etc. And we've done it this way for 25 years, so let's continue. But anyway, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I hope I get to spend more time with it and watch our industry grow and uh, prosper. And uh, I think people like yourself, we're trying to do something different. You're trying to bring information to the industry. And uh, that's the I think important because it's been solely missed for so long in our industry. So anyway, thank you. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for opening the door to me 26 plus years ago, uh, giving me the chance to, to prove myself. And I'll never forget that because that was what it was. It was, uh, you were, you were telling me, Hey, you know what? You want the opportunity. It's yours, but you're going to have to prove yourself. And, and, uh, Gosh, I hope I have at this point. <laughs> but thank you so much for giving me that opportunity and and for the impact you've made on the industry as a whole. I, I really uh, can't under, uh, overstate that enough. And uh, would you like to join us on another episode in the future? Of course. I enjoy talking about our industry. I enjoy talking about what we've done, what other people have done. I just enjoy talking to people about what's going on. So if there's ever an opportunity, I would love to join that would be wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Look forward to having you on our show again here in the near future, I promise. Well, thank you. I look forward to it. Uh, and uh, you know that. So anyway, keep up the good work because I think you are doing good work. Thank you, Joe. And folks, I want to take a moment to recognize our anchor sponsor once again, the Revolution Rail Group. We are a consulting and brokering firm in the rail car industry. So if you're looking for consulting for merger and acquisition, process flow analysis, market analysis, please reach out to us. Also, if you're looking to buy, sell, lease, or sublease rail cars, you can do that with us as well. You can reach us at 844-455-3434. You can email us at info at therevolutionrailgroup.com. And you can learn more about our suite of services at the 
RevolutionRailGroup.com. Our goal, again, is to have our online store up and running by Christmas, hopefully by Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and uh, so you can get all your American railroading uh, gear in time for Christmas for you and for your loved ones. And stay tuned for the December episode. We're going to have a really neat episode for December to wrap up the year. You don't want to miss it. Also, don't forget, if you want to send a care package to our troops that are deployed, you can do that at boots4troops.org. Again, that's boots4troops.org. And you can adopt a soldier. You can uh, donate toward a care package if you can't afford to take one on yourself. Every little bit helps. So once again, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Have a wonderful time with friends and family. God bless. Make it a great day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the American Railroading Podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on a future episode or want to support or sponsor the show, please visit our website at AmericanRailroading.net. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on the American Railroading Podcast.